Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 197. It's titled, The Power of Local and Less. Today, I'm going to do another episode talking about two principles from Skin in the Game, the new book by Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I spent some time on this book because he is one of the most influential writers in my life when it comes to risk management and investing. And it's been, I believe, six years, five or six years since he released a book. He hasn't released a book while I've been doing the podcast. I've been doing the podcast just about four years. The two principles, one's called Via Negativa, and it may be the key to happiness. The second is a principle involving systemic risk and includes the best argument I have ever heard to take action regarding climate change. First, via negativa. We are staying at an Airbnb in the South Main area of downtown Little Rock. We're in a 269 square foot white house. It's called the Tiny House, and on its front gate, it has engraved a metal sign with this quote by Henry David Thoreau. It's from his book, Walden. My greatest skill in life has been to want but little. This house was built by Mike Orndorff and Alexandra Marshall. They live a few doors down And they bought this 31 by 62 foot lot where the tiny house sits because they wanted to raise some chickens and put it in a garden. So they bought this lot for the garden and then they watched the documentary Tiny and decided to build a house. The house is only 269 square feet because that's the size it needed to be in order to not have to file for a zoning variance. They couldn't make it bigger than that given the small, compact size of the lot. House only has two rooms, a bedroom and a living room kitchen area. The bathroom has a shower and a toilet, but not a sink, not enough room. So we have to use the kitchen sink. It's the only sink in the house. On the welcome letter, they wrote, the builders, Alexandra and Mike, we decided to make the house a vacation rental for several reasons, mostly to try to salvage some of the cost. They did an excellent job building this house at high, high quality materials. But to go on, but more importantly, because it is our desire that mankind lives free. Today, it is common for people to bury themselves in debt and then spend the rest of their lives as civilized, civilized slaves to their lenders. But we desire freedom. This doesn't mean you can't buy nice stuff. But if having nice stuff means neglecting our families by working many hours at jobs we hate so that we can afford our stuff, then maybe we should reconsider. That also doesn't mean you need to sell everything and move to a camper. Although we applaud that too. Your journey is your own. It really means that we believe if you aren't happy with less, you won't be happy with more. 
There are two ways to be rich. You can earn more or you can want less. Happiness. You happy with more or are you happy with less? I came across this paper this past week on happiness. It was by Aki Young Kim and Sam J. Maglia. It was called Banishing Time in the Pursuit of Happiness. And, and they found, unlike other goals, they say, pursuing happiness rarely leads to attaining happiness. Instead, seeking happiness more often, ironically, decreases happiness. And that, in turn, causes to want to, to seek even more happiness, to take actions to seek happiness. But the more we seek, the less happy we feel. They write, because time is often a necessary cost in the undertaking of happiness-seeking activities, such as dinner with friends might bring happiness, but it will also take an hour more. And because such undertakings are made at the expense of pursuing other goals, attending the dinner rather than spending that time exercising, the continuous pursuit of happiness will keep people in a resource-limited state a never-ending series of happiness-seeking demands on their time, which may well lead to a sense of not having enough of that very resource of time. All that activity reduces our time, and that produces stress, which makes us feel unhappy. So what do we do? Well, Nassim Nicholas Taleb teaches the principle that he calls via negativa. And he describes it as the act by removing is more powerful and less air prone than via positiva, acting by addition. It's a principle that we know what is wrong with more clarity than what is right. And that knowledge grows by subtraction. It's easier to know that something is wrong than to find the fix. So removing things is more powerful than adding things. I saw this this past weekend. We were staying in Shreveport, Louisiana at a Marriott Marriott Residence Inn. We've been traveling for just about a month now, splitting our time between Airbnbs and hotels. And this Residence Inn was very well taken care of, well landscaped, had wisteria blooming right now. But across the street, there was a family dollar. And LaPrell went in, and I was sitting in the parking lot figuring out, what's wrong with this? Not much landscaping. But I realized there was trash everywhere. They had never, who knows, months, spent any time picking up the trash that littered the parking lot. All they had to do was remove the trash and it would have looked so much better. At the residence inn, there wasn't trash anywhere. There was landscape, but it wasn't so much adding landscape. The biggest difference would have been via negativa, removing the clutter, removing uh, the trash. So perhaps instead of pursuing things and activities that we hope to make us happy, maybe the key is to remove things things that we can remove, because some things we just can't, but remove those things that are causing stress and discomfort. 
As I mentioned, we've been on a road a month. And I realize I'm not missing anything at home. I brought my pillow to make sure I didn't miss my pillow. But on this trip, we're spending time with friends and family. We've done meetup with listeners. I've reached out to people I haven't, old clients I haven't seen in six years. We're finding that activity is good, but we're not missing many of our things. He gives a great example, Talib, of another via negativa. And it was about not having an assistant to maximize free time. He got this suggestion from the entrepreneur, Yassi Vardi, who has no personal assistant. And Talib feels having an assistant suspends our natural filtering. The absence of an assistant, and by assistant, he's not talking about outsourcing a particular task, because I, I do that, for example, for this podcast. But he's talking about sort of having that day-to-day assistant to manage your schedule and, and to, to sort of oversee the, the input, basically act as a filter. He writes, the, the via negativa approach is you want maximal free time not maximal activity. And you can assess your own success according to such metric. Otherwise, you end up assisting your assistants or being forced to explain how to do things, which requires more mental effort than doing the thing itself. In fact, beyond my writing and research life, this has proved to be great financial advice as I am freer, more nimble, and have a very high benchmark for doing something. While my peers have their days filled with unnecessary meetings and unnecessary correspondence. Having an assistance, except for the strictly necessary, removes your soul from the game. So not having an assistant, not having that filter. And I've always wondered, I, I answer my own email uh, when I <laughs> had... Listeners call me on the phone. I've picked up the phone and they've been shocked because I want to interact and I don't want that filter. Makes me happier. So this via negativa approach to happiness is to remove things. But the key is not to remove too much. Leonard Corinne in one of my favorite books, Wabi Sabi, writes, pare down to the essence but don't remove the poetry. We can't remove everything. We want to get down to the essence, but still have some life. Talib refers to it in terms of artisans. He says, anything you do to optimize your work, cut some corners or squeeze more efficiency out of it and out of your life will eventually make you dislike it. Artisans have their soul in the game. So the balance that we want to remove things, but if we remove the artistry and become so efficient that we no longer enjoy the activity. So it's finding that right balance. Remove the stressors that are potentially causing unhappiness, but don't remove the poetry. One other example, staying here in this tiny house, we've, we've already met the neighbors. They're close. But in the summer of 2016, we moved out to our farm in Teton Valley. 
on 40 acres in a not-so-tiny house and went all day and you wouldn't see anyone. The neighbors were more than a half mile away. Tyler writes, I am convinced most people are happier in close quarters, in a real barrio-style neighborhood where they can feel human warmth and company. But when they have big bucks, they end up pressured to move into outsized, impersonal, and silent mansions, far away from neighbors. On late afternoon, the silence of these large galleries has a funeral feel to it, but without the soothing music. This is something historically rare. In the past, large mansions were teeming with servants, head servants, butlers, cooks, assistants, maids, private tutors, impoverished cousins, horse grooms. So he says, to put it another way, if wealth is giving you fewer options instead of more and more varied options, you're doing it wrong. We've seen that. So compare this trip with last year. We were, we spent some time last winter in Mexico. We didn't really know anyone. We, we would interact with people. But this trip has been so much more rewarding because we're interacting with people we already had some relationship with and we're re- making essentially reacquaintances, even if it's been years. We're making those connections. We can't remove our neighbors. It's better to have people close. And we certainly found that in that six months or so we lived out on that acreage on our farm in Teton Valley. Before we move on to the next principle, let me share some words from this week's sponsor. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. One of the things I like about Talib is you can't put him in a political box. In fact, one of his heuristics is that a sign of intelligence is the ability to handle ambiguity and nuances. And if one has a strict sort of litmus test for politics where there isn't really room for ambiguity and nuance, it's tough to navigate this world. So when you look at some of his causes that maybe traditionally liberal causes, says his his fight against climate change or against GMO, that's based on his understanding of how he believes the world works. At the same time, he fights passionately 
against large government endeavors. He believes things should be done at the local level. And one of the reasons he believes that, that he fights, he believes we should take action against climate change and believes that, that we should have smaller government is because of what he calls the precautionary principle. He's worried about systemic risk. And by precautionary principle, it's that one does not need complex models as justification to avoid a certain action. If we don't understand something and it has a systemic effect, we should avoid it, avoid taking that action. I quoted last week, the presence of ruin disqualifies cost-benefit analysis. If there is some tail risk where potentially could destroy the planet, he says the burden it is on those who pollute to show a lack of tail risk. There was a paper that I'll link to in the show notes, or if you're a member of my free Insider's Guide, we'll have sent you that paper or a link to that paper. And it's Climate Models and Precautionary Principle. It's by Joseph Norman, Rupert Reed, Yanir Bayam, and Nassim Nicholas Taleb. And it's just a summary of the paper, but he talks about this anthropogenic climate change. And he says it typically revolves around the accuracy of models. You have some who believe their models are accurate and argue for specific policies to to stop the, the damaging effects of climate change. And you have those who doubt the accuracy and cite a lack of reliable evidence of harm and warn that we should, shouldn't do anything because it'll just hurt the economy. They say in the paper, we should ask, what would the correct policy be if we had no reliable models? And they point out, we have only one planet. And this fact radically constrains the kinds of risks that are appropriate to take at a large scale. Even a risk with a very low probability becomes unacceptable when it affects all of us. There is no reversing mistakes of that magnitude. Without any precise models, we can still reason that polluting or altering our environment significantly could put us in uncharted territory with no statistical track record and potentially large consequences. Further, it's been shown that in any system fraught with opacity, harm is in the dose rather than in the nature of the offending substance. It increases non-linearly to the quantities at stake. And everything fragile has such a property. While some amount of pollution is inevitable, high quantities of any pollutant puts us at a rapidly increasing risk of destabilizing the climate a system that is integral to the biosphere. And so he says we should build down CO2 emissions, even regardless of what climate models tell us. And that's the key. If there's a a risk of, of ruin, we should take action. 
In fact, he says that the the model, if the, with more uncertainty about the models, the more conservative we should be. If the model, we just don't know, then we should be more conservative to protect against this systemic risk, the irreversibility of climate change. It really shifts the argument because then we're not arguing whether the models are correct or not. He takes that to another dimension. He mentions that young people often ask, you know, they want to help mankind and they want to know what should they do to reduce poverty, save the world, and other noble aspirations at the macro level. What is Talib's suggestion? He writes, you must start a business. Put yourself on the line. Start a business. Yes, take risk. And if you get rich, which is optional, spend your money generously on others. We need people to take bounded risk. The entire idea is to move the descendants of Homo sapiens away from the macro, away from the abstract, universal aims, away from the kind of social engineering that brings tail risks to society. Doing business will always help because it brings about economic activity without large-scale risky changes in the economy. Now, in addition to a business, I think starting a not-for-profit can also be good, but do it in a way. That's one reason I like impact investing because impact investing, essentially, it, it's not-for-profit, but they're generate a return, usually a lower than market return through the whatever the activity, but it allows the enterprise to, to be self-sustaining. But this idea of bounded risk so that you don't have the systemic, you're not trying to make changes to the overall system, you're tinkering at the micro level, the, the, the level of business. So you don't have the, the, the risk as it spreads or cascades through the entire system. I need to keep that quote in mind as we talk about in the coming weeks, maybe next week, on artificial intelligence, the potential job losses, and universal basic income, which is I've been requested a numerous times to look at in depth. And is there a way, potentially at the local level, to do that, is it even feasible? So we'll talk about that. Well, I think at this point, I'm going to talk about it next week. But the idea is local. It can be local government. The smallest unit possible within your investment portfolio, often instead of trying to make systemic changes, tinker with small things in our daily lives. If we're trying to become happier, remove things perhaps one at a time, so we can see if it has an impact. So that's episode 197. As You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. As I mentioned, you can sign up for my free insider's guide there. I'll send you that weekly email with a summary article or an article on a different topic. Some, some of my best writing I do each week, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. 
Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.